Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. We will do as we do each week, read the full context of this section, even though we'll only be looking at a small portion. We're looking specifically here at verses 11 to 21. So if you're there, please look at verse 11, and we will begin reading. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on our time together this morning. Help us to have clear minds to think through the things that we have before us today. Help us to recognize that the gospel we believe in, the gospel we proclaim, it is based on certain truths about who we are, specifically who we are in relation to you. And I hope that you will help us to see that, that your spirit will open our eyes to understand. Help us to exalt Christ, we ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So, obviously it's Christmas, and uh, I don't know about you, but I think the older I get, more and more it seems like the present of choice that people give to me is gift cards. Now, I'm not opposed to that at all. I would far rather get a gift card than a hot glue gun, which is an actual present I received when I was eight. Who wants a hot glue gun when you're eight years old? Not, not me. Well, anyway, rather than getting something I don't want, at least the gift card gives me some options. Well, perhaps this Christmas you are going to get some gift cards or some money or something like that, and you may be looking for what you can do with that cash, the kind of things you could buy with it. I will give you a couple of suggestions. First, I would suggest that you consider a bulletproof vest. 
at only $391. I would say this is a real steal for those of you interested in such a thing. Or if maybe that's a little uh, high for you, you're not expecting to get quite that amount of money. Here's something a little more modest that for only $30, you can get a can of pepper spray that is able to repel a moose attack in case that ever happens to you, all right? Now, if you uh, are like me, as you hear these two gift ideas, you, you probably have a number of thoughts come to your mind. First, for me, the thing that came to my mind was, I think you can get both of these items for free if you join the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I'm pretty sure that they are considered standard issue gear for Mounties, so if you're frugal and want them still, there's an option. But outside of that, most of us probably had the same thought. And that is, we would never buy these things because we don't have any need for them. I mean, could I get shot? Sure, any of us could be shot. But I'm not a police officer. I'm not in the military. So the odds of me getting shot on any given day are pretty low. Low enough that it wouldn't warrant me spending $391 on a bulletproof vest and wearing it around everywhere I go. Same with the moose spray. Last time I checked, the number of moose attacks in the Commonwealth of Virginia was hovering right around zero somewhere in that general vicinity. So for both of these products, it's really hard for most of us, I would say, to imagine buying them with the Christmas money that we have been given them. Now, let's change the scenario just a bit. Rather than thinking about ourselves as potentially buying these items, let's imagine that we are the poor guy or gal who has to sell them to the general public. I'll use the moose spray as an example. Imagine that you are the newly hired moose spray salesman. Okay, So here you are, new to the company, new to the industry. You've just been given your very first sales territory, and it is none other than Hampton Roads. And so you start by doing what any good salesman does. You go door to door, right? You knock on the first door, and the lady of the house comes to the door, and you're like, good evening, ma'am. You look very lovely tonight. But you know what would not look lovely on you? A moose. And then the door gets slammed in your face, so you go on to the next house and knock on that door, and the man of the house comes to the door, and you say, good evening, fine sir, I have something here that I think you might find very amusing. Amuse, okay. You paid me for that, thank you very much. Uh, needless to say, after these two encounters, you decide that the door-to-door -door approach is not the way to go to sell your moose spray, so you decide to go to the mall and open a kiosk. You're right in between the guy who sells little helicopter things and the lady with the makeup, right? So you're in that kiosk there, and all day long you stand there, and as people pass by, you're like, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am, can I introduce, show you the moose spray? And, and all day long people just walk by you and ignore you at the rate you're going, particularly if you're paid on commission. I would say it's pretty safe to assume you're going to starve. Now, what's the problem here for you as the salesman? The problem is, is that you are trying to sell a product that nobody thinks they need, right? You see, most of us, any logical, normal person in this room, have a certain presupposition as you hear that story or put yourself in that scenario. You actually have this presupposition. This is not a joke. You really do believe this. You maybe never thought about it, but you do. And that presupposition is that you are not in danger of being attacked by a moose here in Hampton Roads, right? Does anyone disagree with that? Do you walk out of your house in the morning and you're like, looking for the moose? I didn't think so. So see, you all agree with me. Now, <clears throat> understand that once we start talking about presuppositions, these are basic foundational truths of life. Those kinds of beliefs are normally, if not always, black and white. They're either yes or no. They're either true 
or they are false. In this case, if the presupposition is true and I am in no danger of being attacked by a moose in Virginia Beach, then guess what my response will be to the moose spray? It's, no, thank you. I don't, I don't need to buy that. That seems like a logical outcome. But what if my presupposition is false? You know, it is possible, is it not, that the moose spray salesman, he knows something that the rest of us don't know, and that is that there is an impending moose apocalypse that's about to occur. And don't laugh at that one, because some of you in this room, and I do look down upon you, I just want you to know that, you have spent part of your time in the last few years talking about zombie apocalypses, and that is the dumbest conversation I have ever heard in my life, okay? So don't laugh. I don't care what you think, Ed Hensler. You're a dork. All right, so at least a moose, all the Mises could come to town. They could attack. It is a legitimately possible you don't know. Uh, well, if that is the case, right, and we, a moose apocalypse is about to occur, then in fact, I am in danger of potentially being attacked by a moose here in Hampton Roads. My presupposition is wrong. And even if I don't accept it, even if I don't believe it, it doesn't change the truthfulness of that situation. Now, where am I going with all this? That's a great question. Well, I'm trying to set us up to see the third foundation stone that Paul is laying out in his argument here in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. Over these past two Sundays, we have been looking at uh, these very specific biblical and theological ideas. I mean, even granular, you could say, very, very specific, zooming way in on them in an attempt to give all of us a shared biblical literacy that, to be honest, many Christians do not possess. What I'm referring to is the fact that as Paul is making his argument here in the section that I just read to you, he is assuming that his readers understand certain concepts and ideas that I just don't know if a lot of people in our day really truly understand. And so to help us understand them, I'm taking some time to zoom in on these things, what I'm calling these foundation stones. The first foundation stone that we looked at two weeks ago was the idea of real Jewish privilege and real Gentile disadvantage when it came to knowing and living in relationship with the one true God. There is simply no denying the fact that in the past, God rejected the rest of humanity and chose Abraham and the children of Israel as being the ones to whom he would reveal himself and through whom he would recreate his people. And so that meant then that to be born Jewish was to be born with a tremendous privilege, right? A tremendous blessing. And that to be born as a Gentile then was a tremendous problem and left you in a tremendous disadvantage. And so if there's a part of Paul's statement here beginning in verse 15 that sounds as if Jews are better off than Gentiles, that's because, in fact, that's correct. However, the second foundation stone we looked at last Sunday was the fact that being born into this privileged position didn't necessarily guarantee a positive outcome any more that being born into a disadvantaged position necessarily guaranteed a negative outcome. You see, because of their clearly privileged position, the Jews had come to believe that God would accept them as being right with himself simply because they were Jewish and because, in their own estimation, they kept, obeyed, followed the Torah, the Old Testament law. However, as I tried to show you last Sunday, they were wrong on both of these beliefs. First, uh, while being born Jewish was definitely a privilege, one's 
pedigree, one's DNA, one's family is not a determining factor in whether or not God will accept you as being right with himself. He is not a respecter of persons when it comes simply to our families. Second, despite their genuinely held beliefs to the contrary, they were not the law keepers they thought they were. They thought they had obeyed God's word. They thought they were obeying God's word. But in reality, as Paul shows them there in Romans 2, they are lawbreakers. And so neither their Jewishness nor their supposed law-keeping it was enough to make them right with God. And as such, their privileged position did not guarantee that they would end up in that positive result that they were expecting. Now, in saying all of that, I have kind of been assuming another foundation stone that I do not want to assume that everyone understands equally. And so to show you this third stone... I want us to pay very careful attention to the words that Paul uses here in verses 15 to 16. He says, as you can see behind me, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's recognizing their privileged position, right? Yet, he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, there are three key words or phrases that here in verse 16 that are each repeated three times. Did you notice them as we went through? The first is the word justified. The second is the phrase works of the law. And the third one is, this, is some variation of the phrase faith in Christ. You say, wait a minute, Stacey, the second uh, example there says believed, not faith. You're right. Thank you, Mr. Eagle Eyes, for, for catching that one. In English, when we communicate this idea in the noun form, we use the word faith. And when we communicate the same idea in the verb form, we use the word believe. Those are two different words, but they both represent the same idea. However, in Greek, they had the same word in both the noun and the verb form, so in reality, these three statements are the same. Now, back to the point. What I want to draw our attention to today, begin drawing our attention to today, we won't finish it, but we'll get started, is this word justified. This is a rich biblical and theological term that has its roots in the Old Testament as well as the New, but it is also a word that is not very well understood by many believers. I'm talking real believers, not lax believers, real, genuine, committed believers. They don't really understand the concept, nor do they really understand that, that with this word comes a certain set of presuppositions that are either true or false. If these presuppositions are true, then it's going to demand a certain response from people. And if they are false, then it's going to demand a different response. So let's begin looking at this idea. I'll just give you a theological definition of the word justification. This is from Wayne Grudem's book, Systematic Theology. He says this, that justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Now, of these two parts of the definition, it's the second one that seems to get more attention in the New Testament, and so we're going to start with that one first. The way that the New Testament author, authors use the word justify 
indicates that they see it as a legal declaration by God that effectively means to declare someone righteous, to declare someone righteous. Now, follow with me for a moment. In this sense, it does not mean to make someone righteous. It means to declare them righteous. And if you're confused by that distinction, let me show you a very good example. In Luke chapter 7, some messengers from John the Baptist are coming to see Jesus. They want to know if, in fact, he is the person that John has been telling them about. Are you the one, the one John said was coming? And so Jesus answers their questions, talks with them for a moment, and then those people leave. And after they leave, he turns to the crowd who was listening to that conversation, and he begins to talk to them about the importance of John the Baptist, of why he's so significant, and what, how you should really understand him. And about halfway through that section of explanation, we read Jesus saying, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, not just that sentence, but everything he had been saying, when they heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Now this is our idea. They justified God. The people listening justify God having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now let's just think about this for a moment. The people justified God. Are, are the people making God just? Are the people making God righteous as if he's not righteous beforehand, but now because the people come to this conclusion, now God, finally, God is righteous. Finally, God is just. Well, of course not. That's not the case at all. God was already righteous. He was already just. Well, what then are they doing? Well, in this case, they are simply affirming like in an official kind of way in their own minds, God's righteousness. Hey, God is righteous. It's just a, a declaration of acknowledgement of truth of who God really is. He is indeed righteous. If you take that same idea now into a courtroom setting, bring it into our day, understand that this is the very thing that happens at the end of a trial when a particular defendant is declared not guilty. I want you to think about the significance of that judgment, that declaration for a moment. Imagine uh, someone who's been charged with first-degree murder. And throughout the trial, they have maintained that they are, in fact, innocent. And in reality, we get to peer behind the scenes and look at this in this case. We know that they are really innocent. They did not commit the murder. They have been falsely accused. And after looking at all of the evidence, the jury sees the truth, that this person did not commit this crime. And so they return a verdict of not guilty. They justify, they declare righteous this accused individual. With that declaration now, the innocent person is officially seen to be innocent, right? With that declaration, then that innocent person is now officially officially free from the danger of being punished for that crime. It doesn't make them innocent. They already were innocent. It just simply declares them to be innocent, and now they're to be treated and viewed as being innocent going forward. However, let's recognize that the same thing can sometimes happen in a, in a way that we don't like. Let's again imagine someone who has been charged with first-degree murder, 
And throughout the trial, they claim to be innocent, but begin, again, because we can see behind the scenes in our little scenario, we know that this person really did it. They're the murderer. They killed whoever. And so they are really guilty. But how, however, after looking at the evidence, for whatever reason, the jury comes back and, and is convinced that the person did not commit the crime. And so they return a, a verdict of, of not guilty against this person who actually did it. They, they justify, they declare righteous in that official sense, this accused individual. Understand then with that declaration, that guilty person is now officially viewed as innocent. That guilty person is now officially free from the danger of being punished for that crime. Does it make them innocent? No. It doesn't make them innocent. They are guilty, after all. It simply declares them to be innocent. And now they are to be treated and viewed as being innocent going forward. I'm using these examples because I need you to understand just what justification means in general. When we use that term, it is a legal term that means to declare someone righteous. Now, in our case, to say that we can be declared righteous by God presupposes a couple of things, does it not? Here, first, it it presupposes that there is a God. Now, I I won't attempt to defend that because I'm going to assume, and this one thing, I'm trying not to assume too much as we work through this little series here, but I'm going to assume this, that most of you in this room will accept that there is a deity, and so I won't defend that any longer, though I may touch on it again at the end. Second, though, it presupposes that this God views us as being guilty of something. You know, if I come back into the, the, the world of the courtroom example for a moment, you know, as it stands right now, I, me, Stacy Potts, as I stand up here today, I am currently not in need of justification from first-degree murder. I've neither murdered anybody that I'm aware of, uh, nor have I been accused of having murdered anyone. So if I go to my mailbox tomorrow and I find a letter in the mail that says, Dear Mr. Potts, we are pleased to inform you that you have been found not guilty of first-degree murder. No one will be more shocked than me, right? I'm currently not looking for such a letter. I'm not in need of such a finding, that kind of idea. The, The only people who are in need of justification, who are in need of being declared righteous, are people who have either A, actually done something wrong, or B, who have at least been accused of doing something wrong. And as you can clearly see here in verse 16, Paul seems quite convinced that we, us, we are in need of justification. He seems very concerned with justification and with how it is received. So back to the point then, that presupposes that either we are guilty of something, or at least that God is accusing us of being guilty for something. So are we? Are, are we? are we guilty of something before God? Well, why don't we back up to verse 15 for a moment and just look at a word that we've skimmed by over these past two Sundays. Let's take another look at this word, sinners. Sinners, that one. Now, hopefully at this point, after the last two weeks, you have a better understanding than you've ever had in your life of why Paul would refer to the Gentiles as being sinners because they are not a part of the children of Israel because they have not had the privilege of having God's law given to them. They just naturally violate the things that God has 
otherwise expected his people to do. In the law, God laid out what it was he expected from people. There are some things that they are supposed to do, and there are other things that they are not supposed to do. And to violate either of those categories is what the Bible calls sin. Understand that the word sin, just as a little quick aside here, sin is a theological word. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not an accident. Sin is not a simple shortcoming on your part. Who doesn't make mistakes and have shortcomings, etc.? Sin is, is a more loaded term than any of those other words because it, it has to do with a violation of some divine law. And to say that I am a sinner means that there are things that God wants me to do that I have not done and or that there are things God does not want me to do that I have done. Here's your little Jeopardy fact of the day. You know the drill here. If you ever win money off of it, I get a cut. Sometimes you will hear the phrase uh, sins of omission or sins of commission. Have you ever heard those phrases before? Okay, if you haven't, I'll explain it. If you omit an act that God wants you to do, that is a sin of omission. If you commit an act that God forbids you from doing, that is a sin of commission. Now, these aren't biblical terms. These are just theological terms we use as categories to help us understand. But, but even though they're not biblical terms, they're helpful because they give us a framework for understanding the scope of our sin. A sinner, by definition then, would be anyone who does not do everything that God commands all of the time from birth until death and or a person who does even one thing that God forbids just once even would be enough. That is a sinner. To not be a sinner, you would have to perfectly do everything God required your whole life and never once do a single thing he told you not to do. Um, how would you say most people do on that? Yeah, not, not too well, right? I mean, if I just think about what Jesus tells us, what does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How you doing with that one? Uh, Jesus tells us the second greatest commandment is that we love our neighbor as ourselves, as we love ourselves. How, how you doing on that one? Jesus tells us to be patient, to be joyful, kind, good, faithful, gentle, to be self-controlled. I mean, you take your pick of any of those items. I fail at every single one of those all the time, regularly not doing the things that God has commanded me to do. On the flip side, we are not supposed to lie, lust, steal, be at enmity with our neighbor, be jealous, be idolaters. Again, take your pick, I and mean, there's a lot more than that. I'm just naming a few. I've done all of those many, many times, and uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone in this, that this is true of all humanity. You know, last Sunday we, we looked uh, at Romans 2 for a moment, and as I led into that time, I gave you just a brief kind of framework for understanding those early chapters of the book of Romans. I think it's helpful if you ever are studying that book just to think of it this way. When you read Romans 1 through 3, you need to read it as if you are in a courtroom, as if Paul is the prosecuting attorney, as if all of humanity is on trial, Jews and Gentiles alike, and if the charge against us all is sin. And I told you last week that he begins by laying out that case against humanity by focusing in specifically on the Gentiles. Well, that was a really easy case to make. I mean, there in chapter one, he says the Gentiles are guilty of 
rejecting God, idolatry, sexual immorality of all sorts, uh, just general evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, of being haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And I think he got tired of writing at that point. Okay? That's a slam dunk case. He's laid it out. Gentiles, sinners. Any questions? No, okay? There we go. They're, they're done. He then turns to the Jews, which is what we were looking at last time, and he says, hey, Jews, you say you don't do these things, but you do these things. You who say you don't steal, you're thieves. You who say don't commit adultery, you're adulterers. You who say don't uh, uh, worship idols, you yourself are idolaters. And as you get into verse 9 of chapter 3, Paul begins to present the closing argument of his case against humanity by saying words that I think will be familiar to many of you, but hopefully you'll read them now with a little bit different, uh, a little bit different light. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. His point, very easy to see, that all of us, all of humanity, we are sinners. It's just not that we've been charged with a crime, but in reality we're innocent. <laughs> no, we're not innocent of the crimes. We're guilty of these crimes. We've actually committed them. It's as if we're criminals in God's court. None of us righteous. No one understands. Here's a hard one for a lot of people. No one seeks after God. Really? No. No one, he says, seeks after God. Everyone's turned aside. Everyone's worthless. No one has done good in their lives, not even one. And this is what Paul is presupposing when he talks here in verse 16 about justification. He is presupposing that there really is a God and that you and I are really viewed by God as being guilty of something, as being guilty of sin. Now, I'm going to pause here for today. We are not done, believe me. we got more to come with this, so just hold on to this until next Sunday. But um, I want to just point something out to you very simple and I think very obvious, but maybe it will help you a little bit. This presupposition that I'm referring to this morning, and we've, again, focused in on a very narrow piece, that there really is a God and that this God views us as being guilty of sin, it is either true or it is false, right? Those are only two options. Either this is a true presupposition, a true belief, or it is a false one. If it is false, then I would expect people to ignore it. If it's false, I'm going to ignore it. Why would I live under some system that's telling me I'm something that I'm not? If this is a false presupposition, every one of us in here should ignore it. But if it's true, then it should give us pause and cause us to ask a certain set of questions. Questions like, well, if, if I'm a sinner then, a criminal in God's eyes, how exactly does he, does he view me? Um... What then is he going to do to me? Is he going to punish me? 
Um, can, can I be forgiven or pardoned of these crimes? If so, how? You know, these are the kinds of questions that very naturally begin to flow if I accept that that presupposition is true. But understand this, that all of those questions come only when someone accepts that that presup- not preposition, presupposition is true, the one about the reality of God and about him viewing us as being guilty of sin. Without that understanding, I would say that many people in the world today view us when we present the gospel to them as moose spray salesmen. Do you see where that finally ended up? As if we're selling something that they don't really need. Now, maybe they deny the first part of the presupposition. Maybe they deny that there really is a God, okay? They're an atheist and there's no God. Well, if there is no God, if they're right about that, then of course there's no one to answer to. I remember uh, uh, listening to Ravi Zacharias on the radio years ago, and he had this little logical argument and logical chain he built that it was so good for me, just made sense, and I've never forgotten. He said, um, if you're an atheist, well, then there's not going to be any sin, because sin is dependent on there being a moral law that you break, but if there's no moral law giver, how can there be a moral law? There's really no objective basis for right and wrong in an atheist world outside of their own personal preferences, but that could change with time. Without a God, everything we preach and everything we believe would be worthless. But I would say that most people in reality don't deny the first part of that presupposition. Most people believe that there is some kind of a God. And even those who don't, I think really do. And I think I could make a good biblical case for why I say that. The real issue is that many people deny the second half of the presupposition, that God views them as being guilty of sin. They like to view God as being someone who will accept them just as they are, that he is love and happiness and rainbows and unicorns and that kind of thing, right? Just a happy grandfather in the sky. To, to, to think that God is angry with us because of our sin, to, to think that, that he views us as criminals who are guilty of our crimes and that he's ready to punish us. The, these ideas are unbelievable and unacceptable to them. And so to tell them the gospel, to tell them, hey, listen, Jesus died for you. He died to pay for your sins. He came in human form to serve as a substitute for your sins. And he's your only hope of forgiveness. You have to put all your trust in him. It is in their ears like telling them that they need moose spray in Virginia Beach. I just want you to understand what's going on in people's hearts and minds as you share the gospel with them. Because they're like, I'm not in danger of God being angry with me. Why would God be angry with me? Sure, I've made some mistakes. Who hasn't made mistakes? But, but God loves me. He loves, he loves everyone, right? I don't, I don't need a Savior. Folks, if you don't see yourself as being in danger of being attacked by a moose, you're never going to buy the moose spray, right? If you don't see yourself as sick, you're never going to a doctor. If you don't see yourself as guilty of a crime or as being accused of a crime, you're not going to hire an attorney And if you don't see yourself as being a sinner, then you will never see yourself as needing justification. You will never see yourself, apart from the grace of God, which we will get to maybe next time, as being in need of a Savior. Will you bow your heads with me for a moment? Father, we've only begun to scratch the surface of this concept 
just trying to recognize today that this doctrine of justification, this of you declaring us righteous, it is dependent on the idea at first that we are sinners, that we are guilty, that we have violated your moral laws. We've not done everything you've told us to do, and we have done many things you have told us not to do. We are sinners through and through, and you had every right, you have every right to be angry with us and to punish us. And yet, in your grace, you have made a way. You have given us your son. You have sent a substitute who can take our place. And so that we can be made right with you. And we praise you for that this morning. And we thank you for that. And we pray specifically for the people in our lives, our family, our friends, neighbors, coworkers, whatever the case may be, whose eyes are still closed to this fact who cannot see themselves right now as sinners who are under your wrath, who, who have no sense of their guilt before you, may you in your grace enlighten their minds, open their hearts to your word so that the gospel can come in and transform them. They may place their faith in you and once and for all finally be pardoned, be forgiven of all their crimes. Jesus, thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for making us your own. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.